Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, we've seen Mission Impossible Fallout. Mission Impossible 6. Uh-huh. As um, it's much easier to refer to it. Fallout's pretty easy. What do you reckon? Um, I loved it, as you could probably tell. Um, but I didn't love it as much as I had been primed to love it. Mm. Yeah, like, I think... Um, you know, my favorite is still the one set in, I forget which uh, um, Middle Eastern country where he, where he walks up the side of the building. Oh, Dubai. Yeah. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Dubai. Burj, the Burj Dubai. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my favorite. Well, actually, my favorite is the first one, yeah. which I think is a kind of masterpiece. I agree. Um, you know, uh, the the weakest one was the second one, I think. Everyone agrees on that. Yeah, and and then it's almost like I think they've become increasingly better, right? Yeah. Um. So so, but this one, which is I think it's great. It's still, I would I wouldn't say it's better than the last one. It somehow seemed to lack a little something in the first act. I'd say yes. Um. Uh. It's. Let's give a spoiler-free version of the plot. Actually, the plot isn't actually hugely important. So, no. um, the the uh, the new there's a new member on the IMF who's been put there by the CIA, yes. uh, Henry Cavill's character, and thereafter there's there's these three plutonium bombs. That's your sort of central MacGuffin. They're going off around the globe. There's a bloke who you don't know who he is. I, I mean, literally, they, they don't have a, mm. a a face. They just know his name. Maybe he's a ghost. Maybe he's a story. Maybe he's actually a real guy. But he's the guy they're sort of tracking. Blah 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 blah. They're after these bombs. Mm. That's it. That- <laughs> I think it's almost like let's not even bother talking about the plot because it really is inconsequential. What's What's important in this film is the pattern, right? There's a preamble. Then a mission is set out, really, and you know, then the film leads you. Uh, uh, like you said, there's MacGuffin, so it kind of yeah. leads you to places you don't expect, and you know some things are just used to set up tension. They're all punctuated by quite extraordinary set pieces, and then at the end, kind of you have a massive set piece that resolves everything yeah. with with a post wrap up section. Right, spoilers ahead. Okay, <laughs> it's yeah. the same plot as before, and we talk about whatever we want now. So, um, what I think is kind of lacking early on is that. The film is setting up a certain level of mystery around Henry Cavill's character because he's part of the IMF, which, are, which is a very tight-knit team. He's been placed there by the CIA, and the CIA and the IMF are at loggerheads slightly. Alec Baldwin and um, who's the head of the CIA in this? Um, Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett. They kind of they, they butt heads a bit. So, um, so he's kind of in the team, kind of not in the team. And, and also, because I think everyone has sort of heard the... the, the heard about the film beforehand, they were kind of aware that Henry Cavill was a bad guy. Mm. To the film's credit, it actually, it makes Henry Cavill's character um, more of a mystery than I expected. I expected it to be pretty obvious that he's just a bad guy who's sort of finagled his way into the IMF mm. to, to sort of pull some strings, which he is, but you kind of don't know, is he, is he actually this bad guy whose name they only know? Um, and, and, you know, that's his alias, and, and he's, he's sort of an alias way. Or is he kind of working with someone else? Or what's going on exactly? The thing that you know from the very beginning is that he's going to be 
Tom Cruise's nemesis. Mm. Because you only have a big star like that, you know, opposite Tom Cruise, if they're going to be given something to do. Yeah. And actually, so you know that he's going to be the nemesis. Right. So whatever the film is telling you, you know, mm. uh, is, is bounded or rooted in the fundamental knowledge that you know he's going to be the antagonist. Right. Yeah, it's there in the publicity as well. Yes, you know, and and it's the logic of casting that biggest star. Right. Uh, and in my view, Henry Cavill steals every scene he's in. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, uh, he's really well cast. He's hale and bluff and hearty and kind of a little bit thick. Yeah, like so obviously not thick as in stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So so oh, and and I thought that it was interesting that I thought that about him because obviously you can't be that kind of operative for the CIA and be stupid. But actually, it, it means that he's less bright than, than Tom Cruise, yeah? So mm-hmm. it kind of has that, that connotation, you know? And he's very sly and, you know, just funny, really. I, mm-hmm. think, I think he's wonderful. And I'm, I'm sitting here sort of, what we're talking about this, trying to, trying to uh, work out what my point is about what is missing early on. And it's tough to, because the film is really good. But I think, actually, it's, it's that while... The film is setting up these different strands and it is engaging in this slight air of mystery. Actually, what you want is for the uh, relationships and goals to be clearer. Mm. And when they are, when they become kind of resolved and you know exactly what they need to do and who needs to go where, the film really improves. It gets tighter. Yes. And that's probably more around the halfway mark, really. I mean, that's around sort of uh, the time. That's really around the time that Henry Cavill reveals very yes. clearly that he is the baddie. Yes, though he's got wonderful scenes at the beginning. Yeah. You know, uh, 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 you know where, where he seems to be like... The, I, I almost had a moment where I thought, oh, he's being set up so that he can take over the franchise from Tom Cruise. Right? <laughs> yeah, like at the very... Yeah, those yeah. scenes in the bathroom when they're fighting sure. the other guys yeah. and so on. So, you know, I think he just... He does, he does the action so wittily. Mm. It's almost like an Errol Flynn kind of... You know, yeah. type of playing, really. Uh, so, but I thought initially the problem, to me, might have been kind of one of cinematography. Like, I, I don't know if it was the print or the projection, but all of the first 20 minutes or so seemed a little bit, like, both too dark mm. and also with too much light. It's almost like... The film, you know, when you when you, you know, on your program for Photoshop or whatever, when you when you increase the light, it just makes everything go, yeah, higher contrast or no, gray. no. It's, you, it's if you increase the light, all of the colors damp dampen down, right? right? Yeah, but then it the print like is kind also of washed out. You mean it's it's both washed out and dark. Mm. Yeah, so I think all of the opening sequences of the film, it, it didn't they didn't have the intensity of color of the. Of, mm. of the later sequences, yeah. That wasn't something that particularly occurred to me, but although I suppose it's worth saying that the uh, one of the, the the central opening scene of the film is set in a sort of underground yeah. car park, basically. It's, it's supposed to be quite dark. It's and supposed to be in dark. There, but yes. but it, it didn't seem to be a mistake to me that, that I didn't notice. Anything. Okay, uh, so, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, that was my feeling that kind of, you know, mm. part of what felt like low energy was actually kind of being created by the image itself. You know, it wasn't just the playing or, you know, because normally those opening sequences are very boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. With the music and, you know, the deception and the masks being revealed. 
kind yeah. of, you know. Well, it's like it's an American James Bond. Yeah. I'd say more than Bourne ever was actually James Bond has become more like Bourne yeah. but really it was Mission Impossible was kind of the answer to James Bond yes. in, the, in its spectacle and stunts um, yes. and kind of personality yes. um, and so opening the films with those big action sequences which then lead into the you know that's that's like that's iconic and yes. this one doesn't quite have that it starts yeah. off darker and slower yeah it's true um, which is which feels a little bit um, I, I'm a little bit disappointing but on the other hand I don't really have a problem with it like the film Get my interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and it felt you know it set up the story kind of appropriately, I suppose. So and the and the relationships and so on. Yeah, you know, it still had kind of um, you know kind of, kind of twists and reveals and revelations and things going wrong. And oh, we left the plutonium and they got it. And now that's like the opening mistake of the film. They have the plutonium in their hands and then it goes yeah. ah because we left it behind. We were played. What I really liked about Tom Cruise this time around is not only that he's always so concentrated and so focused and trying so hard, mm. but that he's brought comedy to his playing. So actually, obviously, there's this consciousness that he's a lot older now, mm. right? So, you know, they make him miss a lot more, right? And he plays that missing of things for laughs. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, you know, it's meant to be funny when he stretches out his leg to get to the helicopter and doesn't make it or... Yeah. Yeah. I'd, so. I'd have to, I have to rewatch the the... Previous two or three, but I, I mean, I think that's been in his character for a little while now. I, it's, I think it's come out more since Simon Pegg joined the cast. Yes, the humour has been has hu- come out more. The humour's come out more, but I think I think it's. I mean, the, the first one had a reasonable combination. But it was it was really heavy on thriller stuff though, really. Yeah, the last, the second one was just like so down the line, serious sort of action movie, and as I recall it, um, and then since kind of the J.J. Abrams one. It's lightened up, and that's been to well, benefit. I'd have to rewatch them as yeah. well, but it seems to me that whenever there's been humor in these films, it's rarely come from Cruise. Right. Right. Whereas actually, you know, he got a fair share of laughs just just by not succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. By, so whereas before, what you'd get is the sheer will and determination to succeed. Right. Mm-hmm. So he would fall back, but then the will. Would, so you know, whereas actually, yeah, now it's kind of played for laugh, and then he goes back, right? So yeah. I thought that was a kind of, uh, if it's deliberate and if I'm right, it's a witty way to make his age work for him. Yeah, oh. I like the fact that um, he's uh, a good guy in in kind of the purest way, and this film makes a real point of it in that he doesn't, he he will not kill. He 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 has to take on the role of this. A kind of shadowy figure that they don't know. Mm. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Luck or Lake or something. Mm. Um, he has to. He has to play him to try and get get in on this plutonium deal and pretend that, that he's him. Mm. And this guy is like super evil. Mm. So the stories go. Like he he's, he's killed children mm. and done all, all sorts. And Hunt is the absolute opposite. Mm. And the film makes a real point of. Uh, saying like they have this plan that we're going to kill all these cops to to make off with this uh, they're trying to kidnap a, a bloke who's in a convoy and he the, the, te- the tension is is he going to do it and of course he finds a way around it mm. and manages to kind of keep everyone safe and, and undercut what the plan was and then after that there's a very 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 deliberate scene with um, a police officer mm. getting shot female police officer the, the, the IMF are about to get away with uh, the, their target, and they're spotted by a female police officer. This is in Paris. Mm. And basically the answer is they should shoot her. I mean, anyone else would. And Henry Cavill, you see him going for his gun very slowly. Mm. And But Cruz's whole thing is, no, we're 
please go please go away because essentially saying we're going to have to yes. I don't, really don't want to have to do that she's shot by someone else yes. the, the guys who are after them blah 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 he kills them and then, but he really really makes sure that like she's going to be looked after I know but I, I think that's very inconsistent in the film so really? yes so I appreciate I appreciate what you're saying and the thought behind it because I think the film does make a very important point out of making Ethan Hunt a moral person Right. And I think it's important how hard it is to do that. He has to work so hard to be that good. And that's really important. It's not... It, On the other hand, he's throwing people out of helicopters every two minutes. The bad... <laughs> not, not every two minutes. And it is, and it is the baddies. You know. Well... The, guys who the driver to, of the baddies, you don't know... It's the guy like, who's trying to kill him. Uh, well, it's you know? the driver of... Uh, one could split hairs, right? My, my You're point is... Hairs. I well, think, I, I think am, because I think it's kind of inconsistent. I don't think so. Well... He kills a lot of people in this movie. He kills a few people. Kills, well, I don't know. I haven't counted, but it's, <laughs> it seems like a lot, you know. And in, in a way, it doesn't matter, right? So I just think it's inconsistent that there's such a, you know. And yet, I think it is important that the whole film, the whole ethos of the film, is that Ethan Hunt is the kind of person who wouldn't, who would save one man, you know, who yeah. cares about the one man you know, at the risk of millions or whatever, or one person at the risk of millions, you know. So so I think if you are going to do that, you know, then you have to be more consistent about it. Really. Well, I think crucially it's contrasted in this film with the manifesto of the baddies, yeah. which is what it, it's revealed that Henry Cavill has written, which yeah. is this thing about um, killing the, ma- the maximum number of people for, creates the maximum benefit or something along those The lines. longer the piece. The more people you kill, the longer the piece right. afterwards. Um, and which, is why, which is why they're trying to set off these two nuclear warheads in, in the kind of uh, sort of Kashmir, which is a kind of corridor between China and India and the Middle East, where there's a, like a good water. two billion people. It's the source of all drinking water, much drinking water. So if you spoil yeah. that drinking water, you, you not only uh, destroy the area that the bomb hits, but actually, you contaminate. You leave without water a third of the people of the population of the world, or something. Right, like that. and they and and the baddies have this kind of uh, sort of moral argument, which they believe in, which which is that there's a greater good to come out of this. And and Hunt's Hunt's whole thing is there is no such thing as a greater good. You can't kill a person. You can't kill a, well, a good person, let's say, to you know um, for any reason. Which you know he doesn't believe in that kind of sacrifice. People sacrifice themselves or are willing to. Like he won't shoot. Ring Rhymes right at the start. It says you've got you've got to let me die to get away with the plutonium. No. Blah say the thing. He won't do that, I and the plutonium that. gets away. I get it's that. really I know. I know that what the, that's what the film is trying to do. You know, and yet he is this action hero who does throw people off airplanes. You know, so I just think that's inconsistent. I think it's, but it's within the. You, you, but you're still, it's within a genre, you know? It's I, within, I get that. Well, I don't see how, I don't see why then is it so Well, because the reason why I'm bringing it up is because then the film gets a bit too sanctimonious with it, which is an element that I don't like, mm. you know? So, um, and I think actually that kind of preachy moral thing that you like is what I like least. I don't least. think it's got preachy. You mean, well, you mean what Michelle Moynihan says at the end about being in the right place or whatever? There's no. No, not just that. I mean, you know, this whole thing about making him seem like a pure person, you know, was actually the whole thing about being an agent like him is he is by definition impure. You can't be pure and kill people. And he's killed loads. This is, you know, number six in the series, right? So to kind of try to make him out, you know, as like this incredibly moral person who values each little leaf in the planet is silly. 
I, I think that's. I think you're really overstating what I think of him. I, but what I like to see in these films is these acts of heroism. I think the guy is a true hero, and that's what I really like to see. And you don't get this more cloudy, black, uh, grey thing with him. The whole point is you can't do this. I, I mean, like basically, he's Superman, right? He's Superman <laughs> more than Henry Cavill. <laughs> you know, you can't take a life. Blah blah blah. And, and of course, the other thing is like he's kind of Superman, but also he's 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 vulnerable and. Um, kind of prone to mistakes or or, or, or you know yeah. let me tell you what I like best about the film what I like best about the film were the action sequences mm. I also lo- love it that it's like an old fashioned like you mentioned James Bond it is like an old fashioned spy thriller of the 60s yeah you know where it's a thrill to see like I don't know Istanbul in the Bond films or whatever right yeah like in this film you know, you have like Paris and London, like you've never seen them before. Like London is just magical, right? Like mm. all of those, all of those uh, chase sequences, you know, around St. Paul's, right? Like, you know, going up the cupola of St. Paul's and out onto the roof and then, you know, through the roof of the close bridge, right? Right to the very top of the Tate Modern. Mm. That was like gobsmacking. Yeah, it was just thrilling was, yeah. to see, really. And actually, you kind of think that since the '60s, when that globe trotting stuff was 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 not a novelty, but but kind of really spectacular because people didn't see these places very mm. much. Now people do, but still, it's so spectacular. in this that's actually kind of an achievement. It makes you see them in a new way, and actually, it doesn't only make you see them in a new way. It's it's a spectacular sight for spectacular motion. Yeah, like you know, kind of acts of movement. Like, and actually one of the other things that I love about Tom Cruise is, I don't know if it's real or not, but if it's not real, they, tr- they take the trouble to trick you, whereas a lot of other films don't. You know, so there are, there's like that bit where he kind of jumps into the helicopter as the helicopter moves up. Mm. And actually you see the whole movement, right? Mm. Like you see him on a rooftop jumping onto the helicopter rope and then the helicopter goes up and then of course it cuts and, you know, yeah, like... You're somewhere else, but actually, just the movement from you know from 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 the roof to the rope to it going up is just thrilling. Like he takes the trouble mm. to kind of have it all within one shot, right? Yeah. To have that movement begin and be completed within the one shot. Whereas you know, in a Bourne film, that would have been like twenty-five cuts or something, right? And like you'd have no idea whether a person was capable of doing that or not. Yeah. Like here, clearly, a, a person is capable of at least. Faking doing it, right? Like, yeah. Well, the, 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 the thing about Tom Cruise is that you know one of the one of the kind of well-known or infamous factoids about him is that he does all his own stunts. And he's really keen on that. I agree yeah. that the stunts are fucking spectacular, and I agree that the way they're shot and seeing complete motion and seeing Tom Cruise identifiably it's doing thrilling. this stuff is absolutely thrilling. Climbing yeah. the rock face at the end and that sort of thing. Yes, I think. So um, I loved all of the set pieces and I love the use of locations within the set pieces. They were imaginative because, you know, they're beautifully filmed. So when you see him walking from St. Running from St. Paul's over the bridge towards the Tate, mm. you know, the very geometry of the of the roof of the bridge, which who has ever seen it before? Mm. Right. It's like you wonder what work has gone into scouting that. Right. And making those shots that are amazing. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing about the film. I think it's full of amazing shots, you know, uh, uh, which are thrilled to see kind of on their own. It's a very, very well-made film. Yeah, it is. Um, there's less comedy, and Simon Pegg, I think, is less um, 
less well used than before. So that would be a criticism. You I've just... always found his character a little bit overbearing in the films. I kind of I like that they gave him a little bit less to do, to be honest. I think he's badly served this time because other time I mean he's basically used as an archetypal secondary um supporting actor. Mm-hmm. So he's really only used to tell the plot. He tells you what's going to happen or what needs to happen or yeah, mm. and to fulfill several mechanical aspects of it. That's all, you know. So yeah, and, and deliver a few laughs. Not very many this time around. No, not as many. Um, but I, like I say, I don't mind that. I think you know who I did. He is a secondary character, and he's. They, I think they played up his kind of. Oh, bacon stir. I can't do it. I'm Simon Pegg. They played yes. up a bit too much previously, and they did less of it in this. Well, I kind of I liked all of that in the past. I think he's getting a bit too old now to, huh. yeah, so I think that, I mean, I know that it's not that many years ago, but there is a difference in, you know, seeing somebody who could pass for, you know, late 20-ish, mid-30-ish, mm. be that nerdy, geeky guy, and someone who is now clearly in their mid to late 40s and still mm. having that nerdy, geeky thing. Tom Cruise is 56. I know he's my age. Is it? Yeah, so, but I haven't had as many face- facelifts as yeah. him. <laughs> but, but, you know, he's, he's kind of carrying on. I mean, the, it's got to get to a point. It's got to get to a point when they come to like Mission Impossible Nine, where they're going. We do have to work in really to the story the fact that these guys are still doing this at this age. Yeah, well, maybe they'll develop some wheelchair action. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to that. You know, fight sequences. What do you reckon to the stuff with his wife? I didn't like that. Um, yeah, I don't, you see, I think, I mean, what I, what I love about these films in a way is that, I mean, they, they, they are very psychological, yeah, in the sense that, you know, people's villainy and so on Mm. is kind of made understandable, really. And also, you know, this idea of life as a kind of a chase, chess game, that's played on different planes and that there are different game plans that could shift, mm. right? So, you know, there is a kind of a sense of, like, of, of psychology and villainy and, you know, geopolitics that all melt into one, but there's very, very little about um, about love or feeling, except, you know, like, yeah, kind of feeling is weakness, you know, feeling is what makes you vulnerable. And, you know, from the very first moment in the film where... You know, Kirsten Stewart dies, you know, like uh, under the uh, the Prague Bridge, which I thought was such a fantastic moment in the first film. Oh, Kristen film. Scott Thomas. Kristen Scott Thomas, yeah, she's fantastic in the mm-hmm. first film. It's almost like, you know, the things that the, that the hero has an attachment to, the, he only has an attachment to them so that he could briefly suffer before getting on with the mission, yeah. right? So actually, I think to have made him like... You know, I mean, in this film, he's in love with two women at the same time, right? neither of whom he can love. Mm. I just kind of think it's like, it doesn't add very much. And it feels soppy. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I like what she added to... I, I like what she added to the jeopardy, I suppose. You know, the, the other woman that he cares about is also right there and, and is going to die in 15 minutes if they can't save it. So the tension is raised even higher. But she doesn't add an awful lot else. No. The, the, I don't think the, the last scene, the climactic fight, would be changed that fundamentally <laughs> if she were there. I don't think it's well done because the only reason to bring those two women in as, as women he loves is if his love for them 
is something that affects Compli or complicates the way the mission is done. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but That's actually, you know, well, the, one of them does initially, like early on in the film. So you think that the introduction of the other one, like that it would also, mm. yeah. Uh, so that you, you could create levels of tension around that, that the film doesn't really succeed in doing. So really, it just feels like a soppy added on element. Exactly. It's, yeah, her, her only function in the end is to make it a bit more tense. Yeah. <laughs> for well, Ethan Hunt yes. and, and, and not to do anything else. Well, to make him more of a hero, my life would have been, you know, wouldn't have been so perfect without you. Oh, yeah. Like, that that's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was so prepared for that last scene to be, to be uh, 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 like a setup because yes. it was a mirror of the earlier scene uh, where the guy wakes up in, in the hospital bed yes. and they're trying to get the password off his phone. And then it turns out that it's um, that that once once they convince him that they've read out his manifesto on telly, and so he gives them the password. And then it turns out it's been a setup, and he's in a warehouse somewhere. Um, and and you've seen this before in in Mission Impossible films. These, I mean, I think there was one very early on in the first one as well, where they were wearing masks as well in the voice thing. Mm. That's when they first introduced the whole mm. masks and voices, mm. which was which. Uh, continues to be the most fun thing in the yes, world. I love if that. Someone takes off. A mask. I think. I think they didn't use um, the masks enough. And actually, they didn't use the voice thing enough. I would have loved to have seen more of it, though. Yeah. You know, but it's it the, used uh, efficiently. Yeah, there's a there's a good moment with it. There's yeah, a really clever um, moment. With but it. I was so prepared for that last scene where you know, because it's the same thing. It's it's uh, the, the guy in the hospital bed has been knocked out, and he wakes up there, and he doesn't really know how long he's been there, and then he's got people around him talking to him. And I was so expecting that it was going to be. Uh, you know, someone was dressed up as Michelle Moynihan or, or whatever it is and their walls were going to come down because it was so fucking perfect and idyllic and music going oh it's lovely and then it just turns out that it is actually lovely huh. <laughs> you know um, one of the things that I found interesting and I'm just going to look it up is um, the film is well you know it's so clearly a Tom Cruise Vehicle. Vehicle. Um, that, you know, they're, they're not advertising the other people enough. And I always have this thing about American films, right? Like, you know, do, you, do the producers really think that not putting Alec Baldwin and Angela Bassett and, you know, and so on in the credits, right? Because, you know, to me, those are attractions. Like, you know, hmm. I, I would go see a film if you know, Alec Baldwin or Angela Bassett were on it, right? Like, mm. to me, it's a plus knowing that they're in it. It's, I mean, I might not just, you know, so they're not big stars like Tom Cruise. I might not just go see a film because Angela Bassett is in it anymore. But, you know... In combination. It would, it, it would be an added attraction for me to go see it. Mm. And, and the thing is that the film has so many people like that, yeah. right? Uh, and you wonder why, you know... Like they're barely um, advertising um, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Yeah, he's the, he's the second biggest face on the poster, and he doesn't have a name. Yeah, you know. But I, I think kind of um, I, I think I'm going to see a Mission Impossible film anyway. These films are going to make a, I don't know five hundred million dollars each or more. Yeah. Um. So so when someone else kind of shows up like Angela Bassett or Ali Baldwin it's just oh isn't it nice that they're in it too yes well that's true yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy the surprise of them even, well even though they're not always a surprise I think I, there's very few people in this that haven't been in a previous one yeah um, nonetheless you, you kind of I, maybe you kind of forget that they're there mm. you know you go, oh he's, he's, he's here I wonder if this you know so you were talking about like wheelchair you know <laughs> 
Um, he is he is getting on, right? And I think one of the things that brought it out to me was having Alec Baldwin play the older statement, the you know the head of the Iron the section, his silvery you know hair and his suits and. You know, and basically he's he's played almost like a father figure, right? And they're basically the same age. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what Alec Baldwin <laughs> is, but, you know, there might be a few years age difference between them, but not much, right? I'll so how, how much longer can Tom Cruise get away with playing like the young, out of control buck? <laughs> he's four years older. Four years older. There Tom you Cruise. go. You know, I think it's I think the contrast is, yeah. um, you know, the one guy who ages with dignity. <laughs> and the other guy was had. They probably both have tons of facelifts, actually. Yeah. Well, Ali Baldwin's got a better doctor then. Well, or you know, he's had a good doctor to his face and kept his hair grey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was a pleasure to see him. Um, who was the villain? Is it Sean Harris? Sean Harris, yeah. The red-haired guy. He was. He's fantastic. Who is actually. He? Um, I think I saw him could it be the Vikings but he's been in a whole bunch of stuff he was in Rogue Nation which I I mean this is the thing I, I've seen it but I don't re-remember I remember kind of a few set pieces and things but who remembers the plots really uh, um, he's been in 57 films 24-hour party people creep okay. Harold Brown oh he was Macduff in Macbeth so I know him from that Leon McDuff. Oh, he was in 71. Yeah, that was good. And that was really good. And he was in Prometheus, of course. Was he in Prometheus? Yeah, he was in Prometheus. He was in that. Just one of the guys who died. No, he was one of the nasty, one of the nasty guys who died. <laughs> but I think he had a, a prominent role. Let me just check that. That's terrible because you don't get any, any information here except his name. Oh, well. So anyway, he's very good in this. He's a guy who really looks like he's got menace. Yeah, kind of, and that he's hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm watching, I'm looking at um, the cast of Prometheus, and I've forgotten that Idris Elba was in it. One forgets that Idris Elba isn't anything, I'm sad to say. Really. <laughs> I, I know he's got his worshippers, but everybody remembers him from Luther, and then kind of everything else he's been on, like, you know, I think somebody else could have done it better, really, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> No, I know that that's a controversial thing to say, but think of him in Thor. You could imagine other people playing that role. Who was he in Thor? Well, he's the gatekeeper. I forget the name of the character, but he's the gatekeeper to Asgard. Right? Uh, actually, to be fair, I haven't seen Thor. So. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of, I mean, let's look him up. Uh, mm. I mean, he's really forgettable in quite a lot of the stuff um, that he's done. You remember him as a personality. I, I or, think... More than... I think obviously, although he's very memorable from The Wire. That's what made his name. Yeah. You know, he's, he's wonderful in The Wire, he's wonderful in Luther, I think. Uh, and everything else has been, you know, mm. questionable. I mean, I don't remember him from Avengers. Uh, my God, we talked about how, how unsatisfactory he was in The Dark Tower. Dark Tower, yeah. You know, uh, so, mm. um, yeah. Anyway. All right. But he's not in, in Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, um, yeah. Anything, so, anything else? I, I mean, I for me the Mission Impossible series over the last twenty odd years now is my favorite series. Mm. It's my favorite action series. It's my favorite series. I prefer it to all the Avengers films. I prefer it to all the Star Wars films. You know, I prefer it to the Bourne films. 
Mm. Yeah, I think it's the most kind of consistently imaginative. Uh, the one, well executed. Yeah, the the one that has had the best, the very best action sequences. You know, and the most and the most imaginative ones, really. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, it's a formula. You know the patterning of that formula very well. But they're incredibly stylish films. Mm. You know, they're kind of they're often very humorous. You know, and and in a way, they also have a kind of a light touch. Yeah, they're yeah. kind of uh, you know they're played for laughs and for fun. Um, you know, but they're they're like brilliantly executed. And I think actually this is this is in the same pattern. I mean, you know, this hasn't kind of um, uh, altered my opinion of the series as a whole. I think it's the very best series of the last twenty five years. Yeah, and what I really like about it is that. Um, for such an enormous film series, it doesn't have uh, toxic fans. You know, it doesn't have people yes. going, oh, well, that's not what Ethan Hunt would do. Oh, that's this, that, and the other. Oh, you got this wrong. Oh, I hate you if you don't like it. Yes. It's just, it's it's really friendly, accessible action with loads of imagination, so on, as you say. And it's got a multi-millionaire movie star genuinely throwing himself into real peril for your enjoyment. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. And, and, and I mean, just a word about Tom Cruise, right? Because... You know, in a way, he's the star everyone loves to hate. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but I just think there's something very fascinating about him because I think he's been a star since 83. Something like that. Something like that, 84. Yeah. You know, and consistent box office since 83. And here we are in 2018, you know, with his name above the title on his own, carrying a huge film in a huge franchise. And actually, I can't think of anyone who's had the career that he's had. I we've mean, we've even... spoken about this before, and I suggested Charlie Chaplin purely for the length of his career from beginning to end, but he had long periods where not much was happening. Yeah. And there's also Tom Hanks, but he had a period of not really doing anything that, that good until the early 90s. Also, I think Tom, Tom Hanks became a star later than Tom Cruise. Yes, I so think he did. So there's that. And obviously there are people like John Wayne, but I also think if you think of John Wayne when he really became a star, which is like... You know, at the very earliest, say 39 with Stagecoach, but actually it's probably more likely like, you know, early mid 40s, mm. you know, and you think of like, you know, the 70s, that's just 30 years. Well, Tom Cruise has already had, you know, a longer starring career. Yeah, than 35 John. years if we're talking 83. That's right. So, yeah. you know, um, I mean, I think it's just kind of ex ex extraordinary to see him. And this is obviously going to be an enormous success as it deserves to be. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we recommend that you go see it. It's really great. It's the best action movie of the moment. I think your kitchen's about to explode. We need to it's get not. Ethan Hunt in. <laughs> Save the day. <laughs> All right, goodbye. <laughs> so, uh, uh, welcome again, everybody. We've just come back from seeing uh, Mission Impossible Fallout for the second time. Mm. Uh, and this time, we saw it on 3D IMAX. Uh, is there anything that you want to say about the format in which we saw it the second time? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Uh, Limax, we should we should say. Not full-on IMAX. Yes. Um, it, it never is these days. It's always just a, a much bigger screen. Yes. That's a clearer image and <coughs> louder sound and the, <coughs> and the rest of it. Um, uh, the 3D, I felt... Um, actually, at the start, I felt it was really bad. It, it almost looked like it had been post-converted. I'm not sure if it was or not. Mm. The, the, car the characters in the early scenes had a real cardboard cutout look to them really flat and just yes. sort of in stages um, but that, that that wasn't a problem as the film went on and by the time you got to uh, Tom Cruise on the helicopter I mean that's what the 3D was really there for 
it was to emphasise Tom Cruise on a helicopter hanging off the bottom and not dying. Yeah, it was great. I mean, that was great. But I also felt like I don't like um, 3D. I do like IMAX very much, actually. I like I like the size and I, I like the sharpness. Um, but what I thought what um, the 3D revealed this time around was kind of the layers of special effects. Yeah. Okay. So that, you know, like in the helicopter scene, for example, you would see the helicopter super sharp with the 3D standing out from, you know, the background. Yeah, and yeah when, when the clearly... helicopter's on fire and crashing, it's very clear mm. more than it was the first time that that's a 3D model. Yeah. It doesn't look as good. Yeah. I agree. Although I don't know if that is 3D or the IMAX or both, you know. Yeah, anyway, I mean, I suppose what I want to say is that, you know, instead of being something kind of that's thrilling... Uh, for me, it's generally an annoyance, and and though sometimes it can be very revealing about, you know, planes, yeah, uh, uh, and the use of effects within those planes. Like you, you, mm. you know, it's almost like you notice that there are layers of special effects happening in between, like one plane and another. Yeah, I'd say gen- generally speaking, I didn't feel the 3D added uh, anything uh, useful, but the size of the screen was Worth great. It. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think it, it, it hugely detracted either. Though I, you know, my heart was still going like the clappers during the action scenes. Or yeah, no, for me, it, for me, it did detract, um, and it detracted. I mean, partly because you know I wear glasses, and putting the other glasses on top of it is a an annoyance. B, it fogs up, right? So you know that kind of. You've got to keep on kind of removing your layers of glasses to kind of... They don't fog up for me. Yeah. I wear spectacles as well. The other ones don't fog up for me. I don't know if you were getting particularly hot and bothered. Well, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I did I did like the film less the second time around, though I think it, it holds up incredibly well. And like you, I thought the action sequences, uh, you know, were amazing. Mm. Um the things that bothered me in the first film bothered me less. So for the, example, the first screening. Yeah, the first screening. You know, the sentimentality around the first wife and so on. I kind of, you know, I, I didn't. It didn't bother me. I was maybe less invested. I don't know. Mm. Um, and the things that thrilled me continue to do so. You know, um, yeah. and, and that is primarily around kind of the chase sequence. Though I do also think that the thing that I found most exciting in some ways. Uh, about the f- the first viewing was uh, Henry Cavill's performance, mm. and you know he's still great, but actually the unexpected and the charm of it and so on, yeah, has a different effect. So you know that that surprise and delight that I greeted it with the first time around was a bit dampened. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I. I what we were talking about in between because we've seen the films two days apart yeah. but we're just kind of adding this on rather than releasing it as a separate podcast yeah. who needs that um, and in, in the sort of time in between we've, we've, done that, we've hung out and um, we, and we were talking about Henry Cavill and I was sort of saying that um, before the film came out I was sort of worried about him as a villain because um, he's a villain you see sort of less of now although he used to be really the, just the way that film villains were before superpowers came along. Mm. A guy with uh, an agenda and a weapon, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, a, like, a, like a Bond villain or a Tom Clancy villain or something, mm. you know? Um, and 
now that superheroes are, are the, the kind of main thing villains are superpowered or they're mm. kooky or mad or, or in some other way wacky that kind of matches the the, the, the milieu that we yeah. have these days um, and I think it's fair to say that, that Cavill's character is not brilliantly written mm. um, as you were pointing out but Cavill elevates him yes and makes him very makes him memorable he gives a great and a great presence yeah I mean I, I actually think that in an odd way it's a star-making performance, right? Because, I mean, so far his only hits have been with Superman. And this is a film where he really stands out. He's really great, you know. Uh, and he's not only great to look at, but, you know, he's got all these asides and double takes and, yeah, kind of a lot of the performances without dialogue, really. You know, and he makes things funny and, mm. you know, and exciting and agreeable and surprising. Yeah, there's a lot of gesture, um, particularly the bathroom scene where uh, he and uh, Cruz are tracking... Uh, I'm, I keep forgetting the fucking guy's name, Lake or Lane or... No, Lane is the other bad guy. Lark. Lark, John Lark, who's the guy who's going to meet this arms dealer. And they don't know who he is, but they're tracking him with a, with a sort of RFID phone sort of radar situation. <laughs> tracker. <laughs> tracker. <laughs> and... Um, and, and it's, it's not that the music doesn't drop out, which I thought it did. I was watching for the second time. It's, uh, the sound doesn't drop out. You still hear all the dialogue sound of doors opening yeah, and the yeah. crowd and stuff. But there's no dialogue. They're doing it uh, silently. And, it's, and every time someone goes past them, they check the phone and then Cavill looks to Cruz and shakes his head and does it again and again. And, and the way the camera moves to, as they go into the bathroom, it's, kind of, it's, it's actually reminiscent of the CIA infiltration sequence in the first film mm. pure white room and silent communication and um, and I think it's deliberate and as, as sort of as, as people walk past they kind of they exit the scene and then the camera reframes to show you someone else who's at the urinal and is mm. it him and is it not and they move silently and smoothly from one side of the bathroom to the other finding out who it is and it's all done with camera movement and gesture and facial communication yes. and it's brilliant and the, that scene develops really, really nicely as well because yeah. then you get, okay, so they, they identify him and they knock him out and they get him into the stall and then a different threat emerges because a loop group of lads come into the bathroom yes. and see their feet under the stall and think, oh, it's a, it's a, a couple of guys getting off mm. in a stall. So then they're kind of trying to make their way in. In the meantime, they're trying to scan the guy's face to make a mask. It's, it, it develops really, really nicely with threats it's- emerging and going away. It's the best action film of the year. I mean, it has the best action scenes that I've seen this year. And the reason why is because, you know, the filmmakers have paid attention to them. So I think currently people mistake, you know, something going fast or something exploding for an action scene. And that's not an action scene, right? Like, you know, that's like a beat or a thing, right? A kind of, you know, an action scene has a logic and something leads to something and it's like a good joke yeah. you know you have the setup and then there's the development and then there's a fallout and then a fallout and a fallout so just the same way that you could build a joke on top of a joke on top of a joke and in a comedic situation here they do that with action you yeah. know uh, and and you know and some of it is funny and some of it is scary and some of it yeah has an emotional intent you know but it's kind of things logically following from one from the other from the other. And just when you think that they can't go any further, they do. Yeah. Or the opposite. You know, so for example, the scene where Tom Cruise ends up in the tower of the Tate Modern, 
you know, and there's an airplane going away, and you think, oh, he's just going to jump and get on the airplane like he always does. Mm. Yeah, and then he doesn't. Right? He can't, yeah. right? Which is an, a surprise in itself, right? It kind of, I didn't find that a surprise. That's, that to me was where the, that scene was ending. Ah, you know, no, well, it, yeah. That whole, that whole, it's a very, very long chase, and he's just about to catch him, just about to catch up, and he misses him at the end, and it's the, I'll get you the next time bit. Well, I expect, you know, the thing Tom Cruise would normally do, as he does later on in the film, is to jump. Right, and kind of this time he's just a bit too far and doesn't. And that in itself, you know, acts kind of in relation to audiences' expectations. So, you know, the, the, the action sequence has, has a, a kind of um, a logic that the audience is aware of and kind of complicit with and pleased by. Yeah, there's one bit in, in the, there's, a, there's one bit that I really like, which is a very quiet bit, which is in a, in, in a central chase sequence it's a bit with the um bike where, where they're when they're attacking the police uh convoy to get solomon lane out of the police truck and and the, and the idea initially is that we're going to just kill them all and cruise says no i'm not doing that and so he takes it upon himself to do something different mm. and so they smash in the get and then solomon ends up in the water and then they're running away from everybody um and it's very very intricate and they they end up capturing solomon themselves and they end up underneath, um, in, in the sewers, basically, yeah. on a boat. And there's, once that's happened, it's been a really, really intense action scene with a lot of moving parts. And then um, you get about 15 seconds of them just puttering yeah. uh, uh, in the sewers. And the music's still kind of going, but very lightly. It's, just going, it's kind of a holding pattern. Mm. And you kind of know that things aren't quite over yet, and, and they do then flare up again in, uh, a little bit later, or moments later. But... There's, it's like the film knows you need time to decompress. Yes, yes. You know, and, and relax and take in what you've seen. It, can't, it, know, it understands pacing. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's staring at you in the face. You, you, it's giving you time where nothing is happening to calm down a little bit. I love that. Yes, I love that. I love, I love, I love that it understands pacing. I also love, in conjunction with that, that it understands editing. You know, yeah. kind of... Uh, there's none of these like super quick edits of you know where one action is kind of broken up into like 50 components or something. Uh, you know you you see things happening, and often the way that you see it then is part of what makes it thrilling, right? So for example, you know a lot of the helicopter shots where you see him hanging, and all of a sudden the camera will pull back, and then you'll see you know that he's hanging on top of this huge crevice, or mm. yeah. So 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 that actually that the framing, composition, and movement you know, becomes part of what makes the action sequence thrilling before the cut. Mm. I really like, I thought it was brilliantly done. Yeah, and what occurs to me, and, and again, this is something uh, I'm picking up on that we were talking about uh, ourselves yesterday, is that Mission Impossible is basically the only game in town left now that Bond's gone dark and, and taken on the Bond thing of shaky camera and dark kind of personal problems with the heroes and that sort of thing. Um, what else is there now that's, that's, that's doing, that has this lightness of touch? Um, yes. Um, I, yeah, I mean, the likeness of touch is important, and I was just wondering if it has more to do with that. Like, you know, so, so, you know, it's not done with a great deal of depth, but nonetheless, this is a film in which there are things at stake to actions and to explosions, right? Like, you know, uh, it, it doesn't feel like gratuitous, yeah? Mm. You know, so, I mean, people could die... Uh, you know, an atomic bomb could fall. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Um, when uh, 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 Tom Cruise is thrown from his motorcycle, 
and he lands on the pavement. You feel it hurts, right? Like, yeah. So, so it's kind of. I, th- I think that's kind of interesting because I think that's what a lot of action movies have lost, mm. right? The kind of you know that things hurt. Yeah, that actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, buildings are property and they cost money and li- people's lives are invested in it. Yeah, the kind of that all of these things matter. Actually, it's surprising in this film how how little things blow up and in fact you know uh, when they say that Rome has blown up and so on it's a, it's a con you know, it's kind of yeah. it's part of a sting so so I kind of and I think most of action cinema right now like they've lost that you know what's at stake in things blowing up why are things blowing up you know why does it matter and where does it hurt those are kind of key things really yeah I, I get what you mean and I, and I think you're right and I think this also relates to um, what you were being a bit cynical about beforehand, which was which was my what I like about Ethan Hunt is that he is very pure. Because you were being quite cynical about that, saying, "Well, he kills people." Yes. Um, and I, I and my my kind of thought on this, and I was I was really paying attention to it this time, you know. Mm. My thought on this is that okay, so we, you, for one thing, we are we are within a genre in which. People, it depends on the film, but people die quite freely sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. particularly nameless, faceless baddies, right? For like the guy in the helicopter, for instance, who he throws out. Um, and I'm not saying that he doesn't kill people quite freely, but I think it, it's a mistake. To, it, it doesn't engage with the with the premise of the character to be cynical about it. I think I think that police officer scene we talked about, yes. the, the the police officer who he's trying to protect. Um, because she gets shot, or she's she, uh, she she gets shot, and he's and, he's, um, and then the the four baddies who are about to kill her, he won't let that happen. He kills the four of them. Yes. So one life would have been taken, but actually four have now been taken. But it's not about that. It's about who those lives belong to. She's an innocent. Yes. And and he is protective of. You know, this is why you don't get this kind of collateral damage. He's not he's not so happy to just run around causing collateral damage things blowing up and the rest of it mm. he, he, he is it is important that he is a moral character and actually this drives a lot of the action there's an awful lot that's set up with with um, making choices right at the start of the film right when, they, when the plutonium is taken mm. um, they're trying to buy it and then they, they, they are uh, ambushed and Ving Graves' character um, is being he has a gun held to his head mm. and there's this there's this shot um, which is, uh, it's, it's the plutonium, and then the camera reframes to the car, which is right next to it, reframes to the exit, which it's pointing at, and reframes to Cruz. In this one shot, it says, this is the exit. You mm. can win. Yes. And of course, he doesn't, because, because his team is in trouble. He won't abandon them. And this, is the, and this is the thing that sets up the entire thing of the film. And this is why Henry Cavill ends up being assigned to his team, because he let it go. I get that. But on the other hand, you know, I, I mean, I think these two things go together. Because, you know, Tom Cruise is America's national Boy Scout or whatever. So it's also part of his persona and so on. But I also think we can't lose sight of the fact that this guy is a spy. It's like his profession is to trick people and to con people and to kill people. Right? How like, realistic do you want it to be, though? This is, this is kind of pure escapism. And we are allowed to indulge, aren't we, in, in the idea that, that he is doing it for the, for the right reasons or in the right way. Well, I, mean, you know, I think there's this idea that for, for, for Ethan Hunt... Good enough is never good enough. If good enough was good enough, he would have let the police officer die. He would have let his team go because that's part of the job. You might die. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. Well, I get that. And I mean, that's, that's what's the... enjoyable and what and what gives things stakes. 
Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say because on the one hand, of course, I see that. Mm. You know, on the other hand, I do think that it's kind of interestingly contradictory. Yeah, so it's not an either or thing. These things go together, but they have contradictions, and those contradictions are interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you want to leave it to that. <laughs> well, I don't know but, what else to say well, yeah, because, I'm, I'm you know, on the one hand, so for example, you don't know anything about the guy who, um, you know, is piloting the helicopter. For all you know, he's just an employee. He's very well just be an employee of the NGO that they're all working for, right? So, you know, but he's got no qualms about just throwing him off the helicopter, right? So, you know, kind of that goes together with, you know, him being loyal to his friend and him trying to save the policewoman. Yeah, but I'm just saying there are contradictions there. I appreciate that, but I mean, the the the, the, um, the henchman thing is has always been the case of you are working for the baddies. Yes. I mean, if you want to get into the, the minutiae of who they are. I mean, Austin Powers did that joke about it, about no one thinks about the family of a henchman. You know, <laughs> remember? And, um, and, and so you, you, can, you can sort of, I suppose, make that argument, but I, I think this is where you are, you have to accept that we're working within a genre in which there are goodies and baddies. Mm. I, I, I take yeah. your point and I accept it, yeah. you know, but I just kind of, I mean, I'm just yeah. flagging that up. I don't no, know what fine. else to say about it. I really. also like the, I'd also like the sacrifice, because I think, well, I talked about the, the idea of the greater good. And how for for Hunt there is no such thing as a greater good if an innocent life is uh, is in danger. And Angela Bassett talks about. It. In fact, this is one of the least believable things of the film is that Angela Bassett starts off by saying um, uh, that the conflict between the IMF and the CIA, who Angela Bassett represents, is Hunt should have taken the plutonium, abandoned his team, and everything would be fine. Yes. Um, this is why I'm putting Henry Cavill on the team. And then by the end of the film. Uh, she's saying, uh, you know, I understand why you are the way you are and why that's useful. And actually, the least believable thing about the film is that she believes what she's saying. Yeah. Um, but that, it, but, but, the, but that the film ends with that speech and by wrapping it back round again, it's really, really important. It's what the film is about. Mm. Um, and 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 what's the other part? I was thinking the idea. Of the, yeah. So so what I had started by saying there was the idea of of if there is innocent life in danger, then the greater good doesn't matter. But on the other hand, personal sacrifice is totally acceptable. And Hunt's not the only one who puts himself in positions where he could die to save others. There's also, in the fight with Solomon Lane at the end, it's Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Solomon Lane the baddie, and Benji, uh, Simon yeah. Pegg's character, getting, he's being hanged, on, on, and, he's, and he has a box underneath him that's just about keeping him uh, alive, mm. stopping him from, from being throttled, which Ferguson has managed to get under him. And then she's being attacked, and he kicks the baddie to help her, thereby kicking the box away and, and sacrificing himself. And then it leads to the thing of, is he going to die? Is she not going to die? Is she going to get him in time? And of course she does. Anyway, the, you're right that the film has that whole thing about self-sacrifice, because again, with her, with the Rebecca Ferguson character, I mean, what gets her into trouble is she doesn't shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she could have shot him and doesn't shoot him. So, you know, kind of, she's putting his good over hers, and... You know, uh, Tom Cruise is the same with Ving Rams, and then they actually they all do that together when they go, you know, to India, Russia, the border of India and Russia, you know, because they say very actively it's a suicide mission, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, yeah. so they, that is kind of like that is like a, a kind of a theme in the film. Um, I'm just kind of not sure um, mm. what weight to give that. I mean, it okay. certainly sounds something that the film is working with. You know, and it's kind of putting there. 
Um, but um, I'm not. Um, I think the film is framing it as very central, and it's something I like about it. Ultimately, I think it's something that carries it. it, mm. it it's it's carried through very consistently, even with the guy he throws out the helicopter. Yes, well, and you know, and it ends with like you know Tom Cruise sacrificing the woman he loves to another man. I mean, I well, yeah, there's that as well. You know. I, I agree with you on the sentimentality of the wife thing. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, I don't, I don't, I'm, I don't know, and actually, I think I also don't, don't much care. I don't think that that's what's significant about the film. I mean, what's significant to me about the film is that it has about four or five action set pieces that are just amongst the best I've ever seen, really. You know, kind of the motorcycle sequence through Paris is phenomenal. You know, the sequence where um, they go from St. Paul's, uh, you know, over the Thames and into the Tate Modern is out of this world good, really. A model, I think, for any action sequence. And I, f- I think it's also fascinating because most of it is quite, it, it is like, uh, it is, you know, they, you have bits of dialogue, but it's mostly silent. It, yeah, it is all about the action, really. Silence is the wrong word. There are sound effects. Yeah, but there's very little dialogue, you know, mm. throughout those those sequences. Mm. And then the third one, the helicopter thing over um, the, mountains. the Himalayas or whatever uh, mountain range it is, is, again, out of this world great, really. You know, so, I mean, I think the, the film would be worth seeing if it only had one of those. It has three. Um, and it's really like a kind of a master class in action filmmaking as far as I'm concerned. There, there are two scenes I wanted to pick up on that, that have that are, that are kind of implausible in different ways, I'm, and I like one of them. I don't like the other, and and I've been thinking about them. So the first is a skydiving scene. Ah yes. Where um, Cruz and Cavill are uh, infiltrating Paris, and they're going to jump out of a plane yeah. and then infiltrate this party to meet the, the white widow, white widow, the arms dealer. Yes. Um, and they're having a little bit of a, a conflict on the plane, a bit of a tete-a-tete, you know, sort of, you don't want me here, and I'm all here to watch you, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's this thing about uh, Cavill's uh, gas, uh, his oxygen tube to his mask. It's not working properly, and you kind of think, like, is he fucking it up deliberately? Um, and Cruz fixes it for him. And then when they, they see the, the environment they're going to be jumping into, Cruz sees it's an electrical storm, he says, we can't jump through this. Cavill says, fuck you, I'm going. Mm. And not only does he do that, which is reckless, but he rips off um, Cruz's oxygen tube. Yeah. And I can't for the life of me work out why he does that, right? Because at this point, he, he wants... Oh, I get that. He wants Ethan Hunt to be alive. He, he wants to be able to frame him um, for, for what he's doing. Um, and it's, and I, there's, I don't see a good purpose to that. He's just being a dick. And, and then Cruz... Uh, fixes it and dives down and, and, and catches up with him and then sees that his, his oxygen mask, Cavill's oxygen mask, is gone again. So then he performs an act of self-sacrifice and, um, and removes his own oxygen tube, puts it in Cavill's, who's unconscious at this point, then sets off Cavill's uh, uh, parachute to save him, then then manages at the last second to save himself. And and it's, 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 a, it's what Cavill has done in this scene is... Makes I can't work out why what his motivation is and what his objectives are because it's not useful to him for Cruz to be dead um, or or incapacitated or anything. I, I didn't read the scene the way you read it. Okay. To me, it kind of made sense. Mm. You know that he he um, he wants to go. Um, he's not going to be held up, um, and he does that thing to to, uh, to Tom Cruise to prevent him from stopping him. 
So, um, you know, I kind of, uh, this thing about needing him alive and so on, well, he is, he's on the plane, you know, so. Mm. I, I, I don't buy that scene, really. I think he, it's, it's, it's artificial conflict to create an exciting action scene, which it is. But actually afterwards, you, it doesn't make any sense. And it also then doesn't make sense why Tom Cruise isn't kicking him in the balls for doing what he did. He just kind of goes, okay, we've got to get on with it. Like, I guess that sort of makes sense. But he should, he should be really pissed off with him. I don't know. I mean, I think for me it works because it kind of it sets up like this macho competition between the two mm. guys that only kind of really ends in the helicopter scene at the end. And actually, it's very much built up and underlined. You know, Tom Cruise says, you prick, right? And kind of all of these glances about it is like a real kind of, mm. you know, who's got the biggest dick kind of thing that's set up from that moment and sure. kind of, you know, uh, taken to the end. I kind of... Mm. I get that part of it, but I do think it's nonsensical. The thing I want to contrast it with is the one that's underground with Alec Baldwin and the team and mm. it's the one where they have there's a, there's a huge argument and it's revealed that Ethan Hunt um, is they think that he is this uh, John uh, Lark, Lark. Um, because um, that's because of intel that we've seen Cavill has given to Angela Bassett's character yes. so he's framed him yeah. um, and, and so they're, they're, Alec Baldwin who's head of the IMF is confronting um, Hunt with this and, and a lot of things happen and there's a lot of moving parts in it and it, it ends with uh, with Hunt kind of well Hunt incapacitates Alec Baldwin's character and says I'm sorry I had to do this um, I'm going to go off to this meeting because this is our chance to get the plutonium and it's engineered such that they all leave and he's left with Henry Cavill is left with Solomon Lane, who they have in custody. Yes. He, they have a conversation in which it's revealed that Henry Cavill is this bad guy who's written this manifesto mm. and so on and has this plan. And then, of course, it turns out, oh, that's uh, Simon Pegg in a mask he's talking to, not the baddie. And this was all engineered to get that revealed. And it's such an implausible scene that this conversation is being like, it's basically, it's a conversation that's being had for Henry Cavill's benefit. Mm. Because everyone is in on it apart from him. Yes. Um, and I suppose Solomon Lane, he's unconscious. Uh, everyone's in on it. And, but I'm, what, the contrast I want to make is that I totally believe this scene. Uh-huh. And I love it and I think it's loads of fun. Yes. Um, even though it is even more implausible, really, I suppose, in some ways, than, than the skydiving scene, which I have problems with. Yeah, well, I, neither of them bothered me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I just, I was trying to work out where the comp, where the where the difference is. I suppose, and like, I guess it's that if the if the the problem I have with the skydiving scene is the motivations seem really stupid, whereas in the conversation scene, it's the sort of mechanisms that are stupid, but but the purpose of what's going on um, isn't, mm. and it's and it and it fits with the kind of, with that heightened Mission Impossible thing of everyone gets to wear a mask sometimes, and it turns out that you're him and he's you, and I'm wearing spy glasses and stuff. That that all is just part of the heightened world that they're in. Yeah. As long as the motivations make sense. Yes, I I love that. Um, the, you know, the only thing that I thought was missing in terms of Harry Cavill's character is. You know, he's meant to be an idealist in a way, like, you know, mm. a fanatic, right? But an idealist, you know? So I, you know, who is this person who um, has planned his whole life to do something really terrible for the general good to the point that he's written a manifesto and like, yeah, you know. He should be more of a force of personality. 
Well, he should, I mean, the idealism or has a plan or an idea of the world should come out somewhere. Whereas, you know, really, he's yeah. purely action and reaction. Like, you know. Yeah. Well, he, he does make more sense to me the second time because the first time around, I did kind of think he's quite a general kind of baddie in that he's got, he's a bad guy with a plan and a bomb and that's sort of it. And he does make more sense the second time. It comes out in the scene where he is in Paris with Angela Bassett and he's giving her the fake intel on yeah. Hunt. And he's trying to convince her that Hunt... Why would Hunt turn? Mm. And he says, because look at the number of times you've disavowed him. Look at, look at the way you've treated him over the years. Mm. How, how many times is it going to be... Uh, how long until he gives uh, until he's sick of that? And also, you know, he's a guy who, who believed in something. And when he stopped believing in it, mm. uh, you know, he realised it was a lion, a sham, and he turned. And so many people have been like that. Solomon Lane was like that. And what he's telling you there is why he is the baddie. He right. was in he was in the CIA and he turned and he's just putting it onto Hunt to sell the story. Oh yeah, okay. that's what that's makes sense moment. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that I didn't. Um, you didn't yeah, pick I, up on that especially. I didn't pick up on that especially. And actually, what you say makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but but I agree that it's he is he, he seems too practical almost. Yes, <laughs> you know, I mean, he really does remind me of Errol Flynn because he's just so much fun to watch and he's ridiculously handsome and also like very really beefy and so on. But actually, it's all about the humor with which he plays these scenes, right? Mm. And it's all done through glances, basically, or through body gesture or posture, right? And he's just great fun to watch. I mean, um, though I thought very interestingly for me, though probably for no one else, that if you look closely, Tom Cruise has better skin than he does. And he's like, you know, 30 years older, practically. Yeah, like right. he's, a, he's a lot older. Yeah, but he's got like this, you know, really thing. smooth skin. Um, I loved looking at Cavill's face in this. Yeah, the, the, the mustache and the facial hair and the stare that he's always giving, yeah. and the sternness, yes. and and the kind of the, sometimes he, he tightens his jaw. Yeah, that's something. He's great. Yeah. He, he he does have facially just has this presence. He's got character. Face. Yeah, and you're right. The kind of the, the opposition, the, the the kind of macho fight, and the constant standoff between he and and Tom Cruise. Is great, and also the fact that he's a good two foot taller than Tom Cruise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Tom Cruise, like, I, I guess, okay, so partly like Tom Cruise has throughout his life managed to find angles yeah. to shoot himself from to make himself look normal. <laughs> but, yeah. but also, like, when you when you can tell that he's five foot six or whatever he is, he, he still looks great because he's always running. He always runs at like super high speed. The guy yeah. never gives less than one hundred percent. He never looks like he's acting running. You know, yeah, the yeah, guy's just fucking running. running as fast as he can. That sort yes. of thing. I love that. Yes. About him. I do. Um, and he looks great, you know. So, well, you know, whatever he's doing, he's doing right. I just thought it was interesting that, you know, um, Harry Cavill, who's so much younger, you know, you see the lines under his eyes and a little, a little the beginnings of crow's feet. And it's a face, it's a, it's a very handsome face and a young face, but already with character, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, Tom Cruise has had all the creases smoothed out. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to mention, which I only picked up on the second time, is the White Widow character, who is the arms dealer they're dealing yes. with. She's an uh, English lady. She's played by Vanessa Jane Kirby. Um. And it was only on her introduction, the second time we saw the film, that I realised that she is the daughter of Max from the first one, who's played by Vanessa Redgrave. Yes. And it explains so much because she, she felt really familiar. Yeah. And her voice is pretty much identical. It's kind of amazing. And she has this same kind of 
smoothness and confidence and this thing of you are a paradox and actually the film the, 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 it was that thing in the first film of Vanessa Redgrave talking to Tom Cruise I talking to Ethan Hunt and saying you are a paradox yeah. and and when she's introduced in this she's speaking on stage and she, she meets Cruz's gaze mm. and that's when she says this thing about my mother likes paradoxes and yeah. thought oh does she know yeah. I mean even though I know that she doesn't because I've seen the film once already yeah. there's this thing of maybe she does Ooh, maybe she well, I mean, what I appreciated about you bringing that up is um, because it underlines the extent to which the film is really coherent, it's really cohesive, and it's very much in dialogue with its own world. So, you know, that's not the only element or strand that it brings in from the previous films. Mm. You know, so there's the Rebecca Ferguson character, there's obviously Bing Rangs and, and so on, uh, you know, and Alec Baldwin and... Yeah, but also the wife from the third film, and mm. yeah, so it actually is kind of bringing in all these elements. Yeah, like it's it's a world that it's created, and it kind of calls back to it. It brings parts of that world back into this new film mm. in a way that you know often series don't. So, for example, in the Bond films, it's very rare, right? I mean, obviously you have the stock characters M and so on will mm. reappear, but it's very rare. They're that, serialized. Yeah, they intend to be serialized. Yeah. yeah. What I like is that in these films, it's, it's happened very slowly over the years. Mm. I feel like when they made the first Mission Impossible, they never thought this was going to be a series. Yes. It was quite standalone. And then when they said, okay, we're going to make a second one, as I recall it, nothing really came back. I mean, some characters came back, but it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't a sequel story-wise, yeah. you know? And then, and then when they've done three, four, five, and six, it, things, characters have been introduced and then kept there. So, you know, particularly... Uh, uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character and Simon Pegg's and Anne Bolton and they've like no, no big deal has been made of it that they are now a really important sort of set of characters that it's just been quite casually that they are coming back and yes. playing more parts and I I love that it doesn't feel like there is a, a sort of a history and a lore that you must know to understand yes. these films you know yes. despite the fact these characters clearly just know each other and have worked together before and so on Yes, but I like the way that it's kind of developed what seems like almost organically, as opposed to, say, you know, the Bond series, which they've clearly got a formula that works, they adhere to it, it's got a particular set of structure that they rarely deviate from, yeah, and you just kind of, a, you, you create a new episode based on that structure, mm. whereas actually this seems, you know, to unfold from the previous one. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. All right, shall we... Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, 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 uh, I've exhausted what I think of, uh, of the film and the series. Okay, well, I'm exhausted, so... Well, you are exhausted. Let's yeah. wrap it up here. Lovely. That'll be no more podcasts now, after this one. I mean, well, <laughs> we'll do podcasts on other films, but we're done on Mission Impossible 6. Uh, all right, so um, thank you very much for listening. We yeah. are on uh, iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud... That's and, it, that's and eavesdropping at the movies.com for the, the back catalogue and so on and so forth. Right. All right. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye.